Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It's the morning after the night before, except that there are a few more days and nights of counting to go yet. Super Thursday saw elections in Scotland, Wales and all across England. General elections get all the headlines usually, but these elections could have a profound impact on the Union of the United Kingdom itself. We know some of the results. The Conservatives won the Hartlepool by-election in spectacular fashion. Others are becoming a little clearer, even as we record this podcast. So we've called together an expert IFG team to make sense of where we are and what might happen next. IFG senior fellow Akash Pound, who leads our work on devolution, is with us. Hi, Akash. Hi, Bronwyn. Jess Sargent is a senior researcher on our devolution and Brexit teams. Hi, Jess. Hello. And Kath Haddon is a senior fellow, leads our work on the Constitution. Hi, Kath. Hello, Bronwyn. Kath, I wonder if you could start us off with Hartlepool, where the Conservatives won a seat which had been Labour's for more than half a century. Yeah, I mean, this is a seat created in 1974. There's been a lot of, you know, talk in the run up to it. Uh, the polls were showing a Conservative lead. There was lots of debate about do those polls mean anything, etc. But the, the mood music was very much that this was probably, you know, likely to go to the Conservatives in a shock. What's been an even bigger shock is the scale of the victory. It's a nearly 7,000 majority. You know, it's a swing of 16% from, from Labour to the Conservatives. So, it's really thrown, um, you know, the cat amongst the pigeons in terms of debates. And it's for the impartial observer, you can put, almost put any narrative you want to it. You can talk about the impact of Brexit, the impact of Boris Johnson, the vaccine bounce. If for Labour, you know, they're already in the throes of talking about is this, you know, too much Corbyn, not enough Corbyn. But it, it is unusual, isn't it? Governments don't generally win by-elections. Yeah, and I mean, Akash can talk to this. We, he's got a um, graph out today that just shows that by-election victories, normally you're talking about the scale of the swing away from the governing party. is really rare, um, and I don't think uh, in his graph you can uh, see any signs of the swings that might go to the governing party, let alone a sort of swing in this kind of scale. So it really is kind of a shock to everyone that an incumbent government has managed to sort of pull off such a sizable victory and that it's being backed up by other um, votes elsewhere, both council ones and uh, mayoral ones, which, yeah, I will talk about. Just on this one, you mentioned some of the things that might have turned it. Was it the vaccine what won it or pictures of gunboats off the Jersey coast saving football, as Boris Johnson might claim he did? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's going to be one that actually I think the um, the journalists are going to be sort of thumbing over for days. But I imagine the political scientists are going to be thinking about for sort of years to come about what was the actual factors. Probably it's a mix of all of those things. You know, Boris Johnson still has popularity for the Conservative Party. The vaccine has, you know, kept ratings well. We can see in various polls that dipped in terms of the government's performance, uh, you know, the back end of last year, but then with the vaccine uh, has improved massively. There's also lots of talk about the sort of historic problems that Labour is now finding itself in, where its heartlands are no longer an easy area for it to occupy. So there's a big question there about that as well. 
Jess, it, it, just tell us whether you think that a lot of this is still about Brexit, because Hartlepool is very much a, a Brexit supporting part of the country. Yes, I think there was still an element of Brexit um, in the 2019 general election. Uh, the Brexit party got 25% of the vote um, in Hartlepool. And I think a lot of that has gone to the Conservatives. We've seen their vote share rise from 29% to the 51 that's given this given them this, this victory here. Um, but I think, uh, as Kath kind of alluded to there, um, I think this is also part of a broader realignment in British politics and along kind of cultural divides. And that's obviously been crystallised uh, by Brexit. But I think uh, the trend towards that has been decades in the making. Um, as Cass said, there is also a kind of COVID element there. Um, and also this perhaps a sense of kind of port barrel politics, some commentators have been suggesting that that might have played a part. Jill Mortimer, uh, the successful candidate, mentioned the town funds quite a lot in her campaign materials. Um, there's a question of whether actually Conservative MPs are better positioned to get investment in particular constituencies. So a whole multitude of factor, but I think still some lingering effects from, from Brexit. Akash, tell us about um, the Tees Valley and the Freeport and indeed the mayor, Ben Houchen, who's just been um, re-elected. Yes, so um, this is one of the big uh, conservative uh, prizes, if, if, if you like, one of the early signs that they were starting to uh, make headway into, into the Labour Red Wall back in 2017, when Ben Houchen was first elected as, as mayor of Tees Valley. It was very close that time. There was sort of a 1% one, one, 1% or so in it. And I think Labour might have been hoping at the start of this campaign to to, to take that mayoralty away from the Conservatives. But but Ben Houchen is seen to have done a pretty good job for the region. He's been uh, he's he's had quite a high profile. He's delivered a number of specific projects and uh, investment into into the region that I, I think have boosted his popularity. Certainly, yeah, the Freeport announcement earlier this year. He's investing in uh, housing and development in the abandoned industrial areas, the old steelworks, taken over control of uh, of the airport and, and, and prevented that from being shut. So lots of kind of specific things like that that have either secured or, or brought new uh, jobs to the region. Obviously, it was Darlington was chosen for Treasury North as well. From your description, you think these have made a substantial change? Jess was referring to pork barrel politics, the American phrase meaning you know doling out lumps of cash. But take the free port for example. Do you think that is going to make a big difference? It's very popular around there, isn't it? It's certainly popular. Um, obviously, Tees Valley was one of a, a number of locations for new free ports that announced it wasn't the only place. But certainly, one gets the impression that the government is is quite keen to to do. Ben Houchen some uh, favours in terms of some of these announcements and whether whether or not it's going to make a, a big difference in terms of uh, jobs and economic performance of the area. I guess it's a bit too soon to tell the announcements only just been made, but I think it has contributed to this general sense that Ben Houchen um, is a man who has delivered for the region. Yeah, it's certainly expected to bring quite a lot of jobs um, in the short term. Kath, tell me one thing. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. All this stuff about sleaze and wallpaper and number 10, did that all not register? Do people not care? I mean, we saw a bit of a narrowing of the polls in recent days that some thought maybe it's starting to have an effect. You heard the odd whisper that, that maybe it's being mentioned on the doorsteps. But no, it doesn't really seem to have 
cut through, certainly in the results that we're seeing thus far. I mean, remember, we are talking about areas, um, you know, particular areas where Labour versus the Conservative has seemed to have pivoted. We still got to see results like in London or in other areas where Labour might do better. And, you know, there's been a number of gains for the Green Party as well on various council results. So there could be other signs where it has made a cut through, but it hasn't in some of these results that we're talking about thus far. You know, whether that's down to the issue itself just doesn't really resonate with people enough, doesn't have the all important cut through that everyone talks about, or whether it's just the way in which Keir Starmer has handled it and the the kind of slogans he's tried to push for it just aren't really um, making a, a big difference with his voters. Well, take us on to that, um, if you would. Why did Labour, why, so far, but let's just stick with, with uh, Hartley Paul and um, the Tees Valley Mayor, why has Labour been struggling to cut through? Well, I mean, the main thing people are talking about, obviously, there's the, you know, ongoing internal wranglings, and this seems to be um, quite usual for Labour when we look at recent elections, is the, you know, the the left versus the centre, Corbynites versus the post-Corbyn or the pre-Corbyn, arguments about what's the right pitch and how strong should they go on various policies and so forth. But I think actually what a lot of people are settling on is just that Starmer hasn't really settled on a message of hope that's going to cut through. He's, especially in recent weeks, has been really emphasising problems with the Conservative Party. But as we say, with the vaccine, you know, the government is looking like it's delivered, you know, the most important policy very successfully. So that kind of attack method isn't really getting cut through. So if you're not doing that, then you've somehow got to try to present that you're going to deliver better policies. But as we've just been discussing, you know, the government um, is quite good at actually offering money and offering the the lure of possibilities to various parts of the country. I think the key question for them is a lot of this is still, some of this is still promises. And the Prime Minister today has been talking about levelling up again. We still don't really know what that is. So it's it's kind of halfway um, announcements where, you know, this government haven't really shown that they're going to deliver all of this stuff. So there's still a possibility that Labour can come up with alternatives that, um, you know, there might be still a gap for them. But at the moment, it's just about messaging, I think. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult in opposition, obviously. And, and this year has been singularly difficult. He, 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 doesn't want, he doesn't want to, you know, um, you know, say that the government is, you know, is doing a, uh, a terrible job over, overall. Um, he doesn't want to be seen to be undermining what the government's doing on, on coronavirus, but does want to deploy these very loyally skills that he's got to try and point out um, what, it, what it is doing wrong. Jess, I mean, how bad do you think it is for government, effective government, for the opposition to be a long way behind? Which I'm not assuming Labour is, but let, we'll take stock when all the, all the election results have settled. But it, just in general... I think certainly it is a challenge. As you said, I think uh, Labour's found itself in a quite difficult position for the opposition this year because of COVID. Um, and certainly some of the success on, on the vaccine rollout is, you know, while a very good uh, example of a government delivering, it's not necessarily a policy choice that they could be given credit for, essentially, because it's not like the Labour Party opposed um, rolling out the vaccines. Um, but certainly I think there is a question here um, as to... Uh, Kind of how this plays out when we get back to Parliament and what traction uh, the Labour Party might have to critique the government when we do get back to some of those policy questions. Um, so I think certainly this will have an implication on, on British politics more generally. 
let's turn now to Scotland. Akash, where are we now? Well, it is still quite early days in terms of getting all the results. We knew this was going to be a, a different kind of um, election in terms of the, the, the speed that the map of her results get, gets filled in. I mean, based on some of the early declarations, the SNP is not really increasing its support, it doesn't seem. It's lost support in some areas to the Conservatives. It's lost support in some other areas to Labour. It's voters held up better in other places. It's it's going to be a while before we have a really clear picture. Obviously, we'll only know the, the full numbers once all the constituency are declared, and then only after that can they make the calculations of the the regional results, which depend on how many constituencies each party wins. So I think it's it's going to be quite a while then before we have the, the yeah. full picture. It doesn't seem initially that we've had a big SNP surge, so it, it seems like we might be more likely in a SNP plus Greens kind of situation rather than an outright SNP majority. And so what happens, supposing if we take your example, you've just suggested that the SNP doesn't get uh, a majority, but with the Greens, who are pro-independence as well, could say, look, we've got a majority, therefore a majority for independence. What would happen then? Well, the Scottish government plan is to request that the Westminster Parliament passes the necessary legislation, the Section 30 order, as it's known, uh, to empower the Scottish Parliament to to, to legislate, to hold a referendum. Um, so essentially, Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon, with the backing of the Scottish Parliament, if she secures it, will make a formal request to, to the UK government to, to pass that legislation, which is what happened in tw- after 2011, when the SNP won a majority and, and David Cameron agreed that a, a referendum could take place. Obviously, this time it seems quite likely that uh, Boris Johnson is not going to agree to that, in which case the Scottish government is intending, we think, to um, pass legislation to hold a referendum regardless, even though it hasn't had the explicit authorisation to do so. And where would that get them? In that situation, the legislation would be almost certainly referred to the Supreme Court uh, by the UK government, and the court would then be asked to assess whether that legislation fell outside the bounds of of devolved competence, devolved powers. And if, if it did, then the bill would be blocked. It just simply wouldn't become law. And if it didn't, we'd no doubt have a, a, another um, expression of the Prime Minister's uh, incredulity at the court. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it, it, but the other card that the, the UK government has in that scenario, it might not be its preferred card because it would be quite politically contentious, but it could actually just pass legislation to prevent the referendum from taking place. Essentially, it could formally um, amend the powers of the Scottish Parliament to make it crystal clear that this cannot take place without Westminster agreement. Jess, take us into Wales. Um, what news from there? Um, not much, unfortunately. Uh, the counts in Wales have been perhaps even slower than we were expecting, and we've only got a handful of seats um, at this point. I think the real question here is 
the Labour Party being squeezed by both the Conservative Party and Plaid Cymru, and where that leaves it in terms of uh, whether it's able to form a government and whether it's able to form a government on its own or whether it needs a coalition party. Results are trickling in. I think one interesting result that uh, came through just before I jumped on this podcast um, is that the Vale of Cluid was won very narrowly by just 366 votes. The Senate seat had been Labour since the start of devolution and has now gone Conservative. Um, So I think one of the questions here is whether that pattern is followed um, in some of the other kind of Welsh red wall seats, whether this one is a particular outlier. Um, So still a lot to unfold there in Wales, but I think it will be an interesting one to watch. The Vale of Clwyd is up north of Wales. Um, The question is um, what happens in the south, of course, and what happens to Labour support there. Jess, just take us into what's at stake in the in the Senate. So I think, as I said, one of the big questions here is if the Labour Party is the biggest party, whether they are able to form government on their own or whether they will need to enter a coalition. I think the most natural par- party there is Plaid Cymru. Um, we've seen them come out uh, quite strongly in their manifesto in favour of a Welsh independence referendum. Um, now, it's unlikely that that will be an absolute condition for any kind of coalition. Um, but I think certainly there is a question as to what kind of constitution institutional reform might form part of that coalition agreement. But we'll have to see kind of the lay of the land as to whether that is the direction it goes in, um, or whether there is uh, some other alternative formations that might need to be considered. As Ply Cymru had been saying, um, making a lot of the rising support for independence. They've obviously been banging the independence drum for a long time, but now finding more people supporting them. It was a sting for Mark Drakeford, First Minister, because he's, his approach has been rather popular, his approach to coronavirus. Um, and yet the, the rewards of that seem to be going both to Ply Cymru and to, in some cases, to the Conservatives. It seems to me that Plaid has, they drew back from saying we absolutely insist that a referendum is part of any coalition deal with Labour. And Labour drew back from saying we'd never contemplate that. But Akash, where do you think they might end up on this if they're in a coalition? Yeah, so um, Pride Cymru under Adam Price have pushed the issue of independence much more strongly than at previous elections. It's a clear manifesto commitment that they want to hold a referendum on an independent Wales within the next five years. But I don't think it's that likely that they will make that a a red line in coalition negotiations with Labour. And I don't think that Labour are particularly likely to to, to agree to it either, not least because even if they were to, 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 to come to an agreement on that issue, it's quite likely that the UK government would simply prevent it from taking place, even more likely than then that would happen in the case of Scotland. The polling evidence also suggests that there has been a rise in support for independence to some extent, but it's still far below the 50% mark and um, quite unlikely that any such referendum would be won. So I, I think a Labour-applied uh, coalition could be formed and agreement would be reached on lots of other issues, further devolution over tax powers, policing, maybe welfare and so on. But but independence would, would not need to be part of that deal. Thanks for taking us through that. And so, Kath, I wonder if you could take a step back for us all and just look at Boris Johnson's union strategy. You've got a unit in Downing Street working on trying to hold the union together. Yeah, I mean, this is the really big question that we're going to be coming out of this weekend with is, is what what is his positive strategy for that? I thought the most telling thing um, in terms of his response, he dashed up to Hartlepool to go and congratulate Jill Mortimer. And he made a comment afterwards saying that, you know, the key thing to take away now was 
to unite and level up. So he's used the phrase leveling up a lot. And, and we've talked about this a lot of what does this actually mean? It could be a range of different policies. There's no flesh on the bones there. And we're waiting for the Queen's speech next week to see it. But I thought it was really interesting that slogan is now unite and level up because we've been talking about for a while, like what's the positive vision for the for the union here? It, Boris Johnson came to to national power, to into premiership on the back of Brexit, which was all about leaving a union. Now he's got to be the great Remainer, do what David Cameron failed to do and try and hold it all together. So how is he going to do that? Is he just going to refuse a referendum? Has he got a positive vision, a positive message around it? And I think we're seeing the first signs of him at least trying to come up with a slogan. Fascinating. And that really takes us to the heart of whether he can lead the country in that way, not just fight and, as you say, uh, stop things with legal actions or simple refusal to have these. You put it very well. Well, thanks for taking us uh, just a a bit of a look ahead into next week already and, and the future beyond that. With that, though, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing, short and sharp. My huge thanks to the IFG team. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to our website, Institute for Government org.uk. Do register for Akash's event on Monday, where an expert panel will be looking at these elections, what happened and what happens next. We'll also be putting that one out on our sister podcast, IFG Live. And you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, of course, tick in the box, you should be well practiced. And there's a huge amount of election content at our website too. Make sure you check it out. Thanks for listening, everyone. I would say it's time to go and get some sleep, but I think this election will be keeping us busy for a little while yet. Have a good weekend.